Hey heroes, welcome to On Scene First. I'm your host, Tracy Eldridge. With over 25 years in public safety, I am wicked excited and honored to bring you entertaining, educational, and empowering conversations with public safety difference makers who are harnessing the power of -of out-of-the-box thinking when it comes to using the latest and greatest must-have technology tools, a people-first leadership approach, and mental health resources to save lives on both sides of the call. Before we get started, I would like to say thank you to our premier sponsor, NGA911. With their reliable cloud-based end-to-end NG911 solutions, I am super confident they can fulfill your needs when it comes to next-gen core services, call handling, data analytics, and much more. Oh, and did I mention it is affordable and customizable? Make sure you visit our friends at www.nga911.com and tell them Tracy sent you. Now, on with the show. All right. I am wicked excited for today's guest. Uh, my One of my newer friends uh, met online, as I do with many folks, and then got to spend some time recently in person at an amazing event uh, that that he and some other amazing folks put on. But I would like to welcome my friend Keith Hanks. How are you, Keith? I'm good, Tracy. How you doing? Good, good. I'm so happy to have you here. I know we've been chatting about getting you on the podcast, uh, but schedules are just super, super crazy. Uh, we got to spend some time together last Friday, so we'll talk about that in just a little bit. Uh, But for my guests who don't know you, I would love for you to just tell us a little bit about yourself and who you are today, and then we're going to go backwards. So who's Keith Hanks today? What are you doing? Who is Keith Hanks today? I don't even know if Keith Hanks knows who Keith Hanks is today. (laughs) Perfect. Okay. (laughs) Um, No, seriously. So um, without getting too much into my past, I was a firefighter and EMT for 21 years Uh, these days. I consider myself a self-proclaimed advocate for mental health. Uh, I've been advocating for it. What started on social media, uh, kind of took off in the you know writing articles and doing different things like that, and book work and public speaking. Before you knew it, I was you know going around telling everybody about my feelings and how it's okay to be okay as long as you don't stay there, and it's okay to get help and the resources. And before you knew it, I connected with other resources and. Um, one of the things I do nowadays is I am the director of promotions for a first responder coaching and um, just another resource of trying to get out to the first responder community and their families. So in a nutshell, that's who I am or what I do, at least uh, Yeah. today. Yeah. So that's our paths kind of crossed um, on social media. I never know the moment. And I wish I wish I could remember those things. I just can't. But there's always this moment when my path crosses with someone who has a similar mission. And then before you know it, you're already knee deep in, you know, just really supporting each other and making sure that, you know, we're we're getting the message out there. And so I, I became friends with Jennifer Anderson, uh, the founder of, of First Responder Coaching. I did have an interview with her. So if you want to hear more about specifically about First Responder Coaching, uh, go back and check out that episode. I'm not good at remembering the, the episode numbers, but go back and find it and listen to all the other ones too. Uh, and then 
I saw your paths crossing and then, you know, getting into doing more and more, more work together and then saw you in your new role, which I just, I just thought was amazing. Uh, but you, you said you were a firefighter and I'm assuming there became a time in your career where things weren't as great as they used to be. Do you know kind of when that started to happen or to transition or did you not see it when it was happening? You know, I get asked that a lot and um, I kind of go, I go with that answer in two different ways. So I knew that things are different in me. I, I knew the job and in life had affected me probably by 2010, okay. um, which by that point I had had 14 years in the job. Um, however, I knew the job was different probably within the first four months of being on. I knew it wasn't just being a hero and, oh, you're just going to see, you know, bad things, you know, and it is what it is. It was, you know, being 18 years old and beyond the fire department and stuff, I, within four months, I I realized that it wasn't, it wasn't just the calls. It was more, there was more to this job than, than, than that. So it's, it's kind of a two-stage answer for me, I think. Um, but okay. I, I would say 2010 is really where things started hitting the fan. So when you talk about that four month mark, what happened at that four month mark? I know, but they don't know. So, uh, and I talk about this pretty much all the time, wherever I go, because I, I feel it's important for two reasons. Um, in March of 97, I was a senior in high school. I was a call member of the department I was on. I uh, woke up on a Sunday morning to the tones going off for a building fire with people trapped. Uh, we were a small department at the time. Um, I was close. I lived close to the station, got there first. And uh, at the same time, our fire chief signed a route to the call. In uh, route, he signed off saying, you know, confirming there were people trapped and he was going in. And that was the last we heard of him during our response up to the house, which when you're young and don't know how some of these things work, and this is your first uh, fire with people trapped, uh, your mind goes sideways. So I'm, of course, freaking out. I'm with, I'm sitting in the doghouse of the fire truck or the back of the fire truck, depending uh, what your terminology is. And yeah. Uh, with someone who is as new as me, uh, not as young as me, but as new as me. And we're both crap in our pants. And uh, I got off. I was assigned to the water supply seat, which meant I had to get off and pull the line off the back of the truck. So they pulled forward up the 100 foot driveway. And all I saw was a ball of, fl of flames. Um, so I was under the impression my fire chief was dead and anyone who was getting up to the house. And this is sort of a um, for me, it was a pivotal moment because I hadn't seen anything like this in my life. I pull up to the side of the house and what I thought was a pile of blankets walks by me. And as he got next to me, I realized it wasn't because the smell hit me and it was um, come to find out it was the elderly woman who was trapped inside and she was just completely burnt. As I'm seeing this, I look off to my right to the garage and there's a, another elderly person, a gentleman who's bleeding from the wrists uh, with a cop standing next to him. And then I turn my attention back to the house and the fire chief dives out the window being chased by flames. And this is all like in, <laughs> I don't even know, like 35 seconds. And, I was going to say like milliseconds, right? But it's probably uh, going in slow motion. It is. And I can still play out all that. And we're talking 20, almost 26 years ago or 25 years ago. And, you know, the call itself is really bad. It ended up being a murder-suicide uh, attempt. Uh, the woman was medically very sick and the husband didn't want to live without her. She wanted to die. Couldn't, he couldn't, you know, face the flames and go back in. So he tried killing himself. The call itself is bad. Yeah. Um, for me, the takeaway with this and what has led me try to you know invoke so many changes in the first responder world is what happened after with the critical incident stress meeting and uh it's become sort of a joke honestly what what takes place in the key line in this has sort of become a 
major player in some of the other things they do. We have the we have the SISM on a Wednesday night. I believe it was a Wednesday night. We go in. It's all the you know the dispatcher, the EMTs that were there, the cops, myself, my first the first crew that was there, the chief, all men, and we're all sitting in this room. And the the guy running it looks at us all, and I was like, "Oh, you guys were at a call. Someone died. You want to talk about it?" And it was crickets. And yeah. No one said anything. Yeah. And uh, you know, within a uh, two seconds, he's like, "Okay, guys, coffee and donuts in the back." And that is literally what he said. And for me, you know, being having the past that I did. And, and going into this call and having this, you know, this, uh, and I say this all the time, this slice of humble pie served to me uh, or force fed to me. Um, and then going into this with my, with my peers and the people I looked up to, uh, people I knew before I got in the department, you know, I'll be like, no, we don't talk about that. And, you know, sitting there with our arms crossed, Arr, men. And you forgot pounding your chest. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I'm going. It was, uh, it was, I was very, I was, it was impressionable. It was, it was, this is who you have to be. We don't talk about this. And I wasn't even out of high school. Wow. You know what I mean? I mean, at, I mean, at that point I had been the more fires that I had been on dates. You know what I mean? It was that's crazy. That's crazy. When you think about that, right? It's nuts. And, and as, as, I mean, especially as a man um, or, or a young man, you know, our brains are so, so pliable at that point, you know what I mean? That, and, and to sit there in a room and, and be basically told not to talk about stuff. That's what I did the rest of my career. That's how it was. And I was one of those guys who wouldn't, wasn't in the forefront of doing so, but I was one of those guys who was like, yeah, we don't talk about that. I didn't push that on people in, in that sort of sense because there was still part of me that knew we, we should be. Yeah. But, you know, that was a pivotal moment in my young life. I can, I can see where that would be because one of the things that I've talked about before on different episodes and, and I share in a lot of my sessions, uh, which, which by the way, I love that you added to the, to the sentence. It's okay to not be okay. You just can't stay there. Um, that's super important. And to see that like kind of moving forward is really important. That is what I want to talk about for a minute is for so long we were taught. Well, let me go back. In the beginning of my career, we weren't taught. So in 1996, when I was a baby dispatcher, we didn't have mental health and wellness training. We didn't right. we didn't have folks telling us like, hey, these are the things you should be on the lookout for. A few years in, yep, we started talking about it, but we didn't finish that sentence either. Mm -hmm. We basically told folks like, oh yeah, you know, these are the signs of, of critical incident stress. Not sleeping, irritability, you know, drinking, alcohol, like drugs, what, whatever. They, they listed all these things, but nobody ever finished a sentence to say, if you're experiencing this, we need you to go get a checkup from the neck up. So yeah. when when you have impressionable folks like you and I and, you know, we're young getting into this profession, you're just you're expecting it. So all of a sudden you start feeling these things. And then you're like, oh, they told me about this. Mm. And that and that's it. Yeah, that's where it ends. Or at least that's so, where it ended. So I want you to share a little bit of your story because you you are totally the epitome for me of you don't know what somebody's going through behind the scenes. And so mm. you shared a story during your presentation last week that I had no idea that that I think was a pivotal moment in changes for you. So tell me about the first part of your life where things started to change. You had some dramatic things happen, but where did those significant changes start? So I think, um, you know, once I was doing both 
you know, firefighting, you know, shift work at the firehouse and private EMS, um, getting married at a young age, um, you know, all being before, you know, age 23. It was uh, really in those moments that I started realizing there was more, not just to the job, but to life. Um, but I didn't know how to, because of everything I had been through and the family I grew up in, the way I was raised, uh, the people who were on the job that surrounded me, I had no idea like how to process these things. So a lot of my stuff, um, because come to find out, I, I had complex PTSD the whole time. A lot of these things came out as anger, you know, and um, it wasn't until after I got married to my first wife that I had someone in my life that was like, hey, something's not right. <laughs> you know, this isn't how you act. This isn't how normal young men act and um uh, so with my first wife heather uh you know we had started in 2000 2002 2000, late 2002 trying to find me help and and back then culturally competent help key phrase yeah. uh didn't exist right and i can't tell you how many therapy sessions i went to where they never even brought up the job it wasn't even considered but we were trying to get me help uh things weren't going great with it because I was resistive, I was lying, I wasn't telling, you know, everything that happened to me. Uh, I got put on some meds, uh, didn't agree with my body or my psychology. Kind of came unhinged, ended up getting in domestic with Heather, uh, which was uh, sort of like a, you know, a red light, right? Like that was like a warning sign that, because I had never heard a fly my entire life. I was a kid who got bullied in school and didn't fight back. I was a kid who would get insulted and wouldn't insult back. I was very submissive to a, to a certain degree, uh, because of who I was. And now I'm hurting my wife. The aggressor. I'm now the abuser and the aggressor. And this was a, a big moment. So, you know, we separated. And, um, you know, when we, when when she, honestly, uh, finally was like, all right, I've had enough. We've, this was dumb. Uh, I can see that this isn't who you are. You know, she came, I was staying with my parents. She came to me on a Friday night. It was like, let's, let's make this better. You know, and she, I remember her, her looking at me. I can still see her face. Um, we're gonna we're gonna get you help, and I had hope. You know what mm -hmm. I mean. Um, so that night we had made plans. It was April eleventh, two thousand three. At this point, and we made plans with a friend to go out to dinner. We, hey, let's celebrate. Let's let's celebrate life. Let's celebrate. You know, being a family, being friends. Let's just celebrate getting better. And um, we ended up not making it to our destination that night. We got in a really bad car accident, and um, Heather was killed. And the one thing I didn't I didn't realize necessarily at the time, even though it was happening, was as a first responder. When you're involved in a situation, especially in my case, where you're the driver of a motor vehicle that gets in a car accident and someone dies, everything that you've done up to that point is bullshit. It doesn't matter. Why did I bother? I did all these things. I've saved all these people. And now I couldn't even save my wife and they couldn't even save my wife and all that. I didn't realize all that was going on. I didn't. Right. Um, but this incident and several that followed very immediately thereafter, um, really molded who I became for probably the next 15 years, uh, both in my career and my personal life. And because of, you know, how Heather died, the fact that we had two very young children at the time that I then had to become a sole parent and as a man, a father and a spouse, you know, I'm now faced with a immense amount more guilt over um, their mother not being there. And um, I just shut off my emotions. I, I literally made a conscious decision to shut them off. And I told myself I was never going to feel them again. And I was never going to get hurt. And I did that. And it honestly probably made things worse. And I think the job and any other personal uh, matters that happened thereafter were magnified um, tenfold more than they had to be. If I had been um, dealing with my emotions, uh, being supported in a way to process the things that I was going through, but we didn't know. And 
you know, 2003, 2004, it was, um, we just didn't talk about these things. We didn't talk about the effects of the job or the things we go through as responders in our personal life, where right. it's like, well, whoa, he's been going to car accidents for, you know, six years and he just gotten one. How do we, you know, no one really, there was no, what's the next step. And honestly, that was sort of that point early on, uh, before I was even 25, before I was, wow. in, you know, that all this shit happened and it, it sort of dictated the the path for, for me professionally and personally. Wow. So such a powerful story. You know, it's, it's one of those things that when, when you talk about losing the time that you had and, and then all of a sudden you realize like, this is really what I want and let's make this better. And the opportunity wasn't given to you. So I can see where most folks would see where you would be angry and, you know, not wanting to feel the things that, that you were feeling. So talk, tell me about what the next phase looks like. So you're a young dad with two young children trying to do this thing on your own. I, Mm. I can see the trajectory of where it's going, but I want to talk more on a, a more positive note in I'm assuming there was a backslide. I'm I'm assuming there was a spiral downward. Is Mm -hmm. that, can I, is that safe to assume? Safe to assume. So what did, what did that look like in general? So if somebody's listening and, you know, I do think it's important to talk about it um, as to what it looked like as much as you're willing to share, because there's so many folks out there that this is what it looks like for them, but they're not seeing that it's a problem. So tell me a little bit about what it looked like. What did the downward spiral look like? And then I want to talk about how, where where we are, how we got to where we are today, and and the the positive things that are in your world. Right. Yeah. And this this part is really important because a lot of people don't know what to look for, or maybe see it and don't know what they're looking at. So for me, one of the things that I end up using as coping skills were bad coping skills, and the most of that was drinking, drugging, and uh, risky behavior in relationships. And yep. um, it was none of it helped. <laughs> No, <laughs> uh, momentarily. Sure, we, know, we know that we know that it doesn't help, you know, but it was accepted as well, especially as a man. And uh, I do want to I, I want to harp on that. People knew I was drinking. People even they, they may not know about the drug as much, but they knew I was drinking. They knew I was getting around and that was accepted. And it was accepted mainly because I was a guy. It was like, oh, yeah, thanks. Yeah, get around. Yeah. Oh, yeah, another beer, another bottle, whatever. Uh, And it was accepted. And I look back on these things and it's like, why didn't anyone intervene? You know, but that's like some of the obvious stuff. There was anger. uh, There was emotionalist. There was um, sort of like seclusion and removing myself from activities that I, that I normally would be very much a part of. Um, So like, there was a lot of obvious stuff. A lot of things people weren't seeing was the things I was keeping from. And that was like the suicide attempts. That was the you know sort of being not being the father i could have been because i didn't really know how to be because i had no emotions and um you know sort of you know shutting off and and they you know they call it what compassion fatigue these days Mm -hmm. but um cutting off my my emotions to the job where i i didn't care who who was hurt in front of me i didn't care who died i had a hard time feeling sorry for people who were about to lose their you know 90 year old grandparents like they're old you know i found myself no longer having emotions towards things or caring yeah and um that was sort of how that played out and it lasted a very long time um you know the drinking and drugging didn't i, I got over that um pretty quickly thank god yeah um uh, but the risky behavior lasted for years and um it's <laughs> A lot of what people don't see is it's um, this behavior becomes self-perpetuating where 
you're so alone. You may be surrounded by the most people in the room, but you are so alone inside and you're yep. doing these things to grab attention. And you're trying to scream at people that I am hurting so bad. Please help me. But I can't say that because we don't say that. But here, here's this behavior. Please help me. And no one's helping. Right. And in the meantime, you're, you're, you're creating this atmosphere and this, this, um, hostility even where, where people don't want anything to do with you. They're afraid to help you. They're afraid to talk to you. And that's what my life sort of became for a very long time. Uh, because of this behavior and because of this lack of support and help during this time. Well, and you hurt the people around you too. Yep. And so one of the things that I've said before and I talk about is, you know, there were there was a couple of moments where I realized that my behavior and my reactions were possibly causing trauma for my family and, and people around me. And so I think once you can perceive, once you can see it and perceive it, like to me, unless you see it or feel it, people could tell me all the time, right? But unless you get to the realization yourself, it's it's almost like that rock bottom, right? Until you get to the place where it's the darkest of the dark and you can't see it or feel it yourself, right. it's it's going to be very challenging for you to make a conscious effort to change. So speaking of changing, yep. where was the moments? I mean, was it was it a distinct moment where you're like, all right, I need to cut this out? Or was it a progression? Tell me where the change started to take place in a positive direction. Right. So honestly, that you know, all this behavior and you know, negativity and and I guess inward turn self-destruction uh lasted for a very long time. And it wasn't until I had met my second wife, Adele in 2011 that, you know, I started to get more of an upswing and more support in my life. And at this point I had, you know, lost custody of my two older kids. Um, I had been forced out of the, the family house that we had all bought together. Uh, you know, things have really kind of gotten negative again, but finally I had someone who was very supportive. And, um, when I finally realized that, or we honestly, uh, realized that something needed to change, it was in 2014, which uh, was a year we got married. And um, there was, you know, a bunch of key events that took place that were sort of negative initially, but they led to a realization uh, that there's more, there's more out there. There's more to life. There's, there is hope. Things can change. And so come 2015, I, I started getting now culturally competent help. Um, I went to, you know, a couple of different programs. I started Onsite Academy here in Mass. Uh, I ended up finally going through the McLean's Leader Program down in Belmont. And um, I, I finally got diagnosed with PTSD and then eventually complex PTSD along with uh, DID, which is dissociative identity disorder, uh, which used to be called split personality or multiple personality, which is always fun. So now I had the reasons, right? Uh, I, I don't ever, I'm one of those people who are like, we have reasons, we don't have excuses. When you, when you go through things, there's no excuse to be an asshole. There's no excuse to hurt other people. And as much as I did, I had reasons why I did but they weren't excuses. I and love that. I've never heard that before. It's, it's the truth. And I own my shit. I have to this day. And it was in this moment where I finally had, okay, this is why this is happening. It's not just because I'm an angry demonic prick. It's because all this stuff has happened to me in sense of for an early age and undiagnosed and unsupported and unresolved. Now I can stop working on this and I can choose to work on it and get better. Or I can choose to sit here and let it fester and let it eat me alive and eventually kill me. And so I did. And I, and I put my, you know, my heart and my soul into this. I started journaling, you know, this journaling became what's eventually going to be my book. If I ever get off my ass and finish editing it, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it became advocating. 
Um, and it became being honest and I can lie like nobody's business. And I know that may sound awful, but for years I fooled doctors, nurses, therapists, uh, myself, my family, family. Yeah. And now I wasn't, now I was being honest when I went into my therapy sessions. Now I was being honest with myself. Wow. I really don't feel safe right now. Or, oh, wow. This really bothered me. Maybe I should talk about it. Maybe I should face these, uh, these, these feelings and, and whatnot. And, um, that's sort of where it, where it started. 2015 was where I was like, Hey, there's help. This feels good to be getting help. I no longer care whether it's accepted that I get help um, because this is going to kill me if I don't. Right. And, um, you know, but, you know, with that, of course, becomes that shift in the culture where it's like, um, whoa, he's getting help. And, um, you know, eventually, uh, and it's funny because what ended up becoming the final straw for me with my career in 2017 wasn't a bad call. Um, I eventually got to the point where I was like, if I want to continue to heal, if I want to continue to grow as a man, as a person, I need to walk away from the job. And it wasn't even a bad call. It wasn't a dead kid. It wasn't a fire. Uh, it was a complaint filed against because I yelled at a nurse. And the way it went down on administrator level just was enough. I was like, you know something? This is my sign. Yeah. And it's it's weird now because, you know, five years later now, I've talked to dozens and dozens of other respondents. And like, yeah, it wasn't the bad call. It was the lack of support and the administrative betrayal. And that was what got me to leave the job. But it was a good thing. It was yeah. a good thing. And I didn't see it then. And I was so bitter with the job. But it led me down a path where I've grown to be stronger than I ever have been in my life. And I'm now 44. You know, it's not, you know, like I always thought I was at my prime in my 20s, right? But at 44, mentally and physically, I'm stronger than I ever have been. And a lot of that has contributed to leaving the finally admitting that I need to leave the job and to heal from these things. So that's really the, the probably the positive swing up the, in the end, the best, uh, the best thing I did. Yeah. And I think a lot of folks, so I left my 911 center after 20 years and, and you are 100% right. It was not the calls. I mean, did they come to the surface after the Band-Aid got ripped sure, off? Yes, sure. absolutely, 100%. But the Band-Aid got ripped off. So wherever it is for you that the Band-Aid gets ripped off, for me, it was my old town manager. Mm. He ripped the Band-Aid off and just continued to pour salt in that open wound mm. that hadn't fully healed yet. And so it just starts building and building and building. And my goal in public safety, honestly, is to get you to stay if you get the help that allows you to stay or to get you to leave because maybe your story is your your, your next chapter is starting. So for me leaving, it was the hardest decision I ever made because that's all I knew. And I thought that's where I was supposed to be. And mm. when in reality, I knew, nope, I was supposed to take a pit stop at Rapid SOS and I'm supposed to be here doing exactly what I'm doing. And I truly feel the same for you mm. uh, because there can come anger with that decision to leave too, right? Oh, yeah. I, yeah. I'm sure there was some anger there. Uh, but what what would you say the most significant type of treatment was for you? I know you said you went to Onsite and the leader program at mm. McLean. Both I've heard are amazing programs. Uh, I attempted to go to Onsite, but but my trauma was a little bit different and it wasn't going to be the right fit at the moment. Right. Um, but I've heard some amazing things about both of those places. So you went to treatment, but what was the type of treatment? Because I'm my my treatment that saved my life was EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing. 
I've done probably over 100 sessions. It is scary as hell sometimes. Sometimes I know what I get in process, uh, but sometimes it's wicked scary. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the right treatment for me. What would you say that that the the most profound, or if it's a couple of things, what do you think the, was it talk therapy? What What was it? So uh, full disclaimer, uh, honestly, it also helped me realize that I was also way too big for their britches. Uh, I was much too much for them to handle, so which was a good thing. Um, but while there, I did try uh, EMDR, and when it is done correctly, EMDR is amazing. I will second that. It is an amazing. Yes. It brought up things I didn't even remember. Same. And and honestly, some of the things that we worked on did get processed. Yep. Um, but if I had a if I had to pinpoint a couple things, it was really uh, you know, the talk therapy helped with the trauma. Now, to distinguish what I mean by this, it didn't resolve the trauma. Right. Right. It it helped me work through it. Uh, but then it was up to me. And I didn't realize this immediately until I get to this next part, which is really what I feel is the most important form of the treatment here. Um, I didn't realize that there was more to these uh, incidents, both professional and personally, that I had a process and that talking, just talking about it wasn't going to help. And I didn't realize what it was until I started meditating and using mindfulness. And one of the books I always throw out there, and I did it during my presentation, along with about mm-hmm. three other people, yeah, <laughs> uh, is Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself by Dr. Joe Dispenza. Am- amazing book. And um, I had already sort of in 2021 and two- 2020, I had already sort of started getting into this mindfulness thing because I realized the missing piece with all this with healing was I wasn't facing the emotions and the feelings that had either happened or were happening. Yep. And that's what I need to do. The talk therapy was great. The few sessions at EMDR, EMDR that worked were, were awesome. Uh, you know, there was other treatments in there that, you know, chipped away. Sure. Yep. But in the end, when I started reading and learning about mindfulness and meditation, I realized that now is all that matters. And when I'm in the now, I can come back from my moment and I can heal from all the power of the of the shit that had happened to me, whether it's the, the feelings and the emotions or the actual events or actions that were taking place and so i started facing these things and i started facing the raw power that was associated with each event and there's a lot of events and i started working on them i started healing and for me i always tell people this i then became a you know almost 43 year old man who was who was finally discovering his emotions again because i had no idea i had no idea i didn't know that most of the time i was scared i didn't know that most of the time i was afraid or sad all yeah. things that men never are supposed to feel. And even right. some women, you know what I mean? We're, we're not supposed to feel those things. And I was now feeling them and I didn't know what they were. And so now instead of being like, oh, you know, I'll have something happen. Instead of being like, oh, I'm upset about this. I can almost always pinpoint what that emotion is. I'm sad. Yeah. A lot of times, and I'm not, I'm, I'm man enough to admit this. I'm scared. Yeah. I'm scared. There's, there's, you know, there's a lot of unknowns, you know? And so- yeah. Meditation and mindfulness, I would say by far, hands down, is what for me has led me to the most amount of healing and, and, and growth, post-traumatic growth. That's And that's amazing. So I heard you and Steve Holmes that spoke. Huh. He's going to be on the podcast in the near future, too. Nice, yeah. um, you know, big macho Marine, <laughs> right? Yeah. And he's talking about meditating. I loved watching you two banter back and forth about, you know, two grown right. men meditating and coloring and coloring books and all that stuff. But oh, yeah. no. to me, to see that transition for you, I, you know, super proud of, of the work that you've done. And I do think it's important for folks to hear the difference different pieces because for me, EMDR worked. I did find the book. Um, what is the title again? Say it again. Breaking the habit of yourself. Is that 
Breaking the habit of being yourself. Breaking the habit of being yourself. So I did try. I don't know if you saw me sitting in the parking lot for a while uh, as we were leaving. I was I trying <laughs> to find the audiobook of it. And uh, I was only be able to find the YouTube video of it. And it was challenging to have the YouTube video going while I was driving home and using my GPS and everything. So I haven't had a chance to to start the process. Uh, but I'm going to get the audiobook because for me, ADHD, I, I have to listen to things. Uh, but, but it's definitely something that I want to do because in my brain, I don't think that I can meditate, but to hear you and Steve and, um, I think Jules also mentioned it. Yep. Uh, so you had three different speakers who had this already in their presentation. So to me, it sounds like it's a big deal and, and it, and it allows, because I'm always about putting new tools in my toolbox because today this tool works tomorrow. That might not be the tool for the job. Right. 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 And, you know, the nice thing with this book, and, you know, I want to stress this to anyone who who hears this and wants to read it. It's not just, uh, okay, now we're going to meditate. It's this is how we meditate. This is why meditation works. This is how restructuring and refiling your brain can work. He goes over it. And he doesn't go over it in a PhD, anatomy of the brain sort of way. He goes over it in, in a layman's term sort of way. And for me, and for a lot of respondents, we like to know how things work, right? Yeah. If we can see an instruction manual... We never have to see the instruction manual again, but once yeah. we can see that instruction manual, how something operates, we can put it into, into operation. And uh, that's what this book does. And for me, that helped me the most. That's cool. So you mentioned your extremely supportive wife, Adele, who, <laughs> what I refer to, uh, same with my husband, picked up the broken pieces that they had nothing to do with breaking. Pretty much. Um, and you have a beautiful daughter. Yep. Three-year-old, three-and-a-half-year-old Riley, yeah. So how different is life today? It's uh, dramatically different. You know, I look at, um, for a lar lar large portion of my life, I always feared what the next challenge was going to be. On the job, I rose to the occasion. Yep. On the job, I think most of us, for the, even if we're hurting and tearing ourselves apart on the inside, we're the first one in the door, we're the last one out, right? I was that guy. But in my personal life and, and growth, I was always afraid of that next challenge or what it might be. These days, because of how much healing I've done, how much support I have in my household, I look forward to the next challenge. And for me, with all that I do these days, I wake up every day and the first thing I say to myself is, today is going to be whatever I choose to let it be, how I react to it in that manner. And I'm going to do better today than I did yesterday. And at least with, with at least one thing. It doesn't have to be that, you know, okay, you only had $50 in the bank yesterday. I'm going to make it so I have 3000 not in that sense. One thing. Okay, yesterday this affected me and I got angry about it. Today I'm not going to let that affect me and I'm not going to get angry about it. Something as simple as that. And I try to spearhead everything going forward and, and take everything as an opportunity. And uh, because of that, I've been able to enjoy um, both my marriage, but specifically, you know, my young daughter. I mean, having three kids, two of which are adults themselves now, having a, having a three and a half year old at 44 is... Uh, Nah. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. <laughs> but bet. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you something. There was, I was leery about having a kid uh, when I was 40. Uh, my wife is younger than me uh, by quite a bit. And I was leery, but I'm going to tell you something. I have been able to witness and experience things that I don't think I would have appreciated trauma or not back when I was 22 and 23 of my other kids. Yeah. The kids are an amazing gift and they allow us to see innocence that we sometimes forget we used to have. And it's been it's been a roller coaster ride. There's been there's been some stuff that has happened, but honestly, all of us led to growth. 
And uh, Riley has given me the opportunity to see things uh, that I don't ever remember experiencing with my other two kids. And it's been a gift. It's been amazing. And I love every day. Awesome. So that's where Um, I'm at. (laughs) I love I love success stories. Uh, I don't I don't know if I'd ever find somebody that wants to come on the podcast if there's somebody out there that's like, yeah, I'm in the middle of this and and I'm choosing not to get help. Like I don't I I one of the things that I get a little bit frustrated with is I'll have folks that'll reach out to me and, you know, say they're struggling and I'll kind of point them in the right direction or we'll have conversations and they see that I'm being successful in my in my recovery, uh, but then they won't do the work. Right. They, they just right. they they won't do the what? Yeah. Okay. Have you called a therapist? Because I gave you a list of the therapists in your area that do EMDR for trauma and PTSD. Have you called them yet? No, I haven't. If there was something that you could say to the person right now that's in the thick of it, that's in the mess, that's in the weeds, that that is has been listening, or they know that there's help out there, but they just they haven't executed. What would you say to them? So for me, because I'm a, a, even to this day, I'm a blunt, honest guy, and I appreciate the same return. Um, I would appreciate someone making me aware that nothing's going to change until I just choose to change it. And that could be something as simple as going a different route to work, or it could be as simple as facing the shit you've been through and acknowledging that you're human and that it's okay to be feeling everything that you are. Yeah. And that's really the message is that it is okay to be feeling these things. There is anyone who's doing this job, anyone who in, in society, you're not a cyborg. We're humans. We're emotional creatures. You know what I mean? We have these feelings, but for so long, because of whatever, whatever it was, society, culture, whatever it is, you know, we've been told that we, we, we don't, but we do. You do have these. That's why you get angry because you're fighting, feeling what you really are, which is either fear or sadness. You know, so face these things. Because it's, the you, it's usually not anger. Anger is the no. secondary emotion to the the real feelings that we're having. Bingo. That's really cool. And now before we wrap up, I want to talk about where you are in your position with first responder coaching, because a lot of folks aren't aware of what coaching is. They think therapy, right? That therapy right. is the only opportunity. Like I got to go talk to a therapist. And, and a lot of times therapists, they listen. They don't give tools. They don't give you homework assignments. They don't give you things to to tangibly walk out with. Tell me a little bit about your role. Well, first of all, tell me a little bit about first responder coaching um, because I do have the podcast with Jen and we talk about it a little, you know, on her aspect of it, starting it and why she started it. But talk a little bit about what it is so folks that are listening right now know what it is. But then I want you to talk about your role for a minute and then we'll go ahead and wrap up. Uh, so what I always tell people when it comes to therapy versus coaching is um, one doesn't replace the other, um, yeah. for one thing. Uh, you know, therapists kind of, when you go to a therapist, you go, you're depressed. Okay, we're going to work on depression. You know, oh, you're having anxiety. We're going to work. They have, they have the answer that you need. So the difference that I found with with coaching is, yeah, sure, it's a, it's a meeting set up, structured, I guess, similar to what a therapy meeting would be, um, but it's a little different you're doing all the talk and you have the answers as you know, the person being coached and your coaching partner is, is there to help guide you and help, help you set goals and see different perspectives on things. And it's not just mental health because it's not therapy and it's not crisis work. Um, it's like more of a peer support model, I guess, if you had a, if you had to put a label to what this meeting would be. And so with, when it comes to how I kind of got into it, I met Jen uh, through Facebook group. We sort of connected, realized we had similar paths, similar 
goals with mental health and breaking down the stigma and helping first responders. And so I get coached, we start working on things and I immediately start seeing that um, as much as, you know, therapy was great. It was more of a here, I'm the expert and this is what you need to do. Follow my steps. And it, and that's good uh, with certain things, but with coaching, I was able to work on things that maybe had nothing to do with my mental health. Maybe it was just goals. I never wanted to face because of my mental health. Right. And um, getting someone who held you accountable and responsible for doing these and kept up with you and checked on you helped me do so much more of the other things that I'm doing these days that are that are part of my success. Um, and I just built on it. And then after a while, I just did it myself. But then, so after being a coach, I became a coach. So I'm now a certified coach. And the whole plan was to bring me on uh, as sort of her street credit, if you will. Um, yeah, <laughs> that it worked. <laughs> and uh, so I originally became the director of business development. Very quickly realized I am not a salesman. Yeah. Um, I am not someone who can, you know, sell a refrigerator to someone who's looking for a stove. So I, um, I totally can, by the way, that's, that's my niche is I could sell a ketchup popsicle to a man in a white suit. I don't want to <laughs> sell it to you. I don't want to sell it to you. I just naturally do it. Like, I don't want to, I don't want quotas and criteria and all that, but I, yeah, I'm pretty good at that. <laughs> I, uh, that is, that is, I wouldn't say it's a weakness, but acknowledging doing something that I'm not comfortable doing is a weakness. Um, so uh, I acknowledge it. Uh, we switched my position. I'm now the director of promotions. And essentially what I do is um, when I, when I speak on behalf of FRC, um, cause I do speak outside of FRC. Yep. Uh, when I speak on behalf of FRC, I, I really tie in how important coaching can be. And the way I tie it in is much of what I just said, but also how much it can be beneficial to so many other parts of our life. Once you learn what coaching is, how to utilize it both either as a coach or being just being coached. You learn so many different types of listening skills and conversational skills that yeah. is directly transferable to to therapy, to your mental health recovery, and to your relationships. And you know, one of the things that I've been able to work on with my wife is this: this uh, we're both we're both Irish, and um, <laughs> at times at times is is oil and water. As I'm sure many couples would be like, oh yeah, try and have a conversation, and, and that's natural, right? Yeah. One of the things we've been able to work on is clarity in our conversations, not necessarily always getting to a result, but the clarity. What yeah. do you mean? What are you trying to convey? What is the so message? Big, so big, so huge, so huge. 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 And that goes back to not just, and again, not just mental health stuff, but like paying the bills. What's a, what's your plan today? What's your what's your schedule next week? And and these days I'm very busy. And if I hadn't worked on these listening and, and conversation skills with my wife, my, my wife would wake up some morning. I'd be heading out the door to go catch a plane somewhere. Like we Worry, don't, yeah. you know, we weren't communicating and this has allowed that. And um, it's such a very powerful tool that, that I swear by. I mean, it, it, it's helped me in so many parts of my life. And so I always try to talk to people about it. Uh, even when I'm not representing FRC, coaching is part of my life now. And I mention coaching in almost every presentation I yeah. do. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's uh, just, a, it's just a different, it's another tool. It's a different tool yep. and it allows us to understand. I do coaching. Um, I have a, a personal coach who was the one, uh, Gord McFarlane, who introduced me to the DISC human behavior model in uh, the next level. So that's a huge part of my foundation. Uh, but his coaching for me uh, helps me first understand myself <laughs> mm -hmm. and then other people and and where those kind of clashes might happen and that communication and the expectations and and things like that. And, you know, I, I think it's really cool that Adele is that calm to your chaos mm -hmm. and she's able to, you know, understand kind of who you are, where you're coming from. And, you know, you guys are are truly working together as 
to, to become a success story. And I think that's great. And maybe Adele needs to be on my podcast as the calm to the chaos. <laughs> I could talk to her. She, she hasn't done a podcast yet, but maybe you can be her first. Yeah, well, maybe she needs to, because I do think uh, one of the sessions that I'm going to be writing is, is about the family and, and, you know, kind of the impacts yeah. that what we go through, uh, how, how it affects the family and, and what they're kind of responsible for. And, and, and yeah, maybe she needs to be the first, first of that on there. So. Nice. Yeah, I'll talk to her for sure. All right, my friend. Well, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a really powerful conversation. And and with every conversation that I have, I, I know that it's going to affect someone and it's going to change somebody's life. And you and I both know we may never know who it changed, right? You never know. You and never that's know. Okay. And that's it's okay. okay. As long as it's as long as it's changing and, and we know that. So but until next time, my friend, stay safe. You too, Tracy. Thanks for having me on. Hey, heroes. We hope you enjoyed the show. Please like and follow me on my on-scene first social media so you too can keep up with my shenanigans. And make sure you get to know our friends over at NGA911. You can start by heading over to their social media and thanking them for being our premier sponsor. Remember, stay safe, stay strong, and stay here. We need you.